it's 15 degrees outside right now. So what time is it? <laughs> time to be inside and record the next episode of We The Peace. We The Peace is a podcast sponsored by PAX, dedicated to mobilizing Christian leaders to bring Jesus-centered peacemaking and justice into our organizations. We explore how peacemaking, activism, and the justice of Jesus are central to discipleship. We the church are we the peace in a hurting and violent world. In season two, we explore how Christian leaders can develop a Jesus-centered outlook on politics. What does Jesus have to do with politics? How does the kingship of Jesus impact our understanding of modern politics? In what way is the church a political institution? We will define politics, walk through the four Christian views on politics, and then look to the ministry of Jesus for how Christians are to relate to and mobilize politically. Let's jump into this week's episode. What up, everyone? My name is Josh. This is We the Peace. In this episode, I will briefly survey the four Christian views on political engagement. I will use the Reformation as the case study to express three of the views. The Reformation is especially relevant because Christianity in the U.S., has been largely shaped by the European export of the Reformation by way of the colonial wave that washed along the shores of the Americas. We will get into a little bit of history for some context to the political theologies that swirl around you, your leaders, and your churches. I will make it clear that political witness, faithful subversion of politics is the most biblical version of political activity for Christians. Faithful subversion of politics. This view is in line with the prophetic tradition from within church history. I'll bring that into focus later. I will argue that the politics of Jesus means we are faithfully subversive to the political powers that surround us. If you want a more nuanced approach to these views, I'll offer some resources at the end of the episode. So here are the four views. First, we have political influence, Christians seeking power over politics. Second, we have political ambivalence, Christians looking to work alongside politics. Third, we have political reclusion, Christians rejecting worldly politics. So, the Reformation. Quick disclaimer as we dive in, this is a brief overview that will be painfully broad for some, others you're going to learn a lot. And of course, these views developed over time and space to become very different things. Here is what you need to know, broad brush. The Roman Catholic Church around the time of the Reformation was coming out of the Dark Ages in bad shape. Church and state were virtually the same. The Pope and Cardinals were running governments and governments were running Catholic churches. The wage gap was insane where you had peasants and normal folks who had very little upward mobility in Europe and a ruling class who had all the power and capital. It was bad. And on top of that, the Bible was not accessible 
two people. That sucks. So three guys, John Calvin, Martin Luther, and Eurig Zwingli, among others, led a campaign to reform the Roman Catholic Church, i.e. Reformation. The reforming didn't work, so the Protestant Church was launched. Protestant means to protest. It eventually became a completely separate church. The Reformation was seen as a move back to the Bible, back to living for God according to the scriptures, and a rejection of Roman Catholic tradition along with the Pope system. We had five solas, 95 theses, Bible translations and towers, lots of angry debates, indulgences. Google it. So how did these reformers in the 15th century view political engagement? First, John Calvin was a proponent of power over politics. Calvin simply adopted, with a bunch of Protestant nuance, the political theology of the Roman Catholic Church. Remember, the Roman Church ran various states and provinces, and Calvin just adopted this position and posture. Basically, Calvin believed that through power and Protestant government influence, the kingdom of God would spread. This, of course, included war, conquest, and actually putting hits out on heretics killing fellow Christians for believing the wrong thing. This position looks to Moses, David, and Daniel to justify Christians being in any position of political power and killing non-believers. And it was a straight medieval political theology dressed up in early modern and reformed garb. This is the most pervasive view in North American Christianity among dominant culture Christians like me. Though it's nuanced, Again, wrapped in modernist language, this view rode the colonial wave with the Puritans into the northeast of America. The power over politics position, listen, has been the yeast to the bread of the downfall in the West. This view replaces Israel's conquest in the Old Testament with the Protestant Christian conquest of the colonial world, and most certainly North America. Read about the doctrine of discovery. This view encouraged the church to cast itself as the new Israel in the world. This view suffers from a Dark Ages Constantinian Augustinian hangover. It's a huge move away from Jesus. Did we get many good things out of the Reformation? Sure. But this Calvinistic power over politics position gave way to manifest destiny and the weaponization of the Bible and doctrines like sovereignty and providence to enslave Africans for the sake of Jesus and expanding Western civilizing natives for the sake of Jesus. This position, when left unchecked by the politics of Jesus, always results in the witness of the church disappearing. This is what we have seen time and time again in U.S. history. We are still suffering from these sins. If you're looking for someone that is doing good work trying to redeem this view, I'd read James K.A. Smith, probably desiring the kingdom as a great start. He has had a big impact on my thinking. Second, you had Calvin's contemporary and pal, Martin Luther, 
He's the 95 Theses guy. Luther represented more or less political ambivalence, Christians working alongside politics. Luther wasn't in the Calvinistic game of becoming a king or leader of a country for Jesus. Luther developed a two kingdoms perspective where you had the church and the kingdom of God and and the state and the kingdom of the world. He was careful not to take up too much political influence because he did not expect the church to have too much political influence because he did expect the church to have some separation. Maybe vote, maybe not. Maybe engage in the process, maybe not. Does that sound like some people you know? Those holding this political theology will look to Paul, who didn't seem that politically engaged, and he just planted churches and didn't speak much about the politics of his day. There are also many Christians in the United States, especially those from majority culture, who are more Lutheran in their political theology and don't realize it. This position, when left unchecked by the politics of Jesus, always results in a lack of political engagement, and a diminishing of Jesus's kingship as it relates to the public square. Third, you had Minnow Simons, who was an Anabaptist. This view represents political reclusion, Christians rejecting worldly politics. So the disciples of Luther, Calvin, and Zwingli decided to take the mandate of sola scriptura and really follow the Bible alone. They decided that if Jesus said, love your enemies, you should do that. If Jesus, the Gospels, and Acts teaches that adults can and should get baptized after they decide to follow Jesus, then you should do that. So Calvin and Zwingli, among others, hunted down and ended up murdering these followers of Jesus because they rebaptized people. And this was treason against the Protestant and Catholic states. Remember, these countries were Protestant or Catholic countries with very little separation of church and state. And violence was more than normal. Because of the Anabaptist belief in following the teachings of Jesus and loving their enemies, they didn't fight back and many were killed. They became a separatist group that ended up fleeing persecution from Catholics and Protestants alike. Historically, this group here in the U.S. has been known for their stance against war, loving those suffering from war, helping build the mental healthcare system, and support of disaster areas across the country. Listen, I love me some Mennonites, but they are also known for their political inactivity. This is a problem because Jesus is anything but politically inactive. The Mennonite view left unchecked simply disengages from the problems of the world for the field, a quote, quiet in the land that Jesus confronts. All three of these positions are lacking. All of these positions are broken. All of these three positions are not fully in keeping with the politics of Jesus. So as you, a leader thinking through power over politics, Calvin working alongside politics, Luther rejecting worldly politics, Minno Simons, I want you to think about the people you are leading and which camp you find yourself in, if at all. And remember, 
the Reformation is so relevant for the faith traditions we find ourselves in. Why? Because Reformed theology, for better and oftentimes worse, is the primary and dominant theological import of the colonial era. So we find ourselves suffering from malfunctioning political theologies in our churches. I will turn to our fourth position as the solution. But first, I want to make some comments about these three positions. And I I want us to reflect on these observations in your own heart and your own leadership. First, these three positions are not entirely mutually exclusive. This means that I am not setting up three camps that are enemies of one another. Some are more compatible than others, but they are not necessarily against one another. Second, so much of your political theology is dictated by your social location. For instance, the Anabaptists were forced to the margins of European society and over time began developing a theology of seclusion. This cannot be overstated. Consider how your culture, social location dictate your thoughts and feelings towards politics. Three, Your theology in other areas will impact your understanding of these political views. For instance, many reformers around the time of the Reformation were amillennialists in their eschatology, their view of the end times. This meant that they believed the kingdom of God was fully present on earth. Jesus was in some sense fully reigning on earth and Satan was being bound up by God. The end was now, and it was the duty of the church to take up the sword now, the sword of government to bring Christ to the world, ushering in the kingdom. This had an impact on their political theology. Always stay aware of how other theological categories impact your politics. Four, and listen to me here because this might be novel. None of these three political positions were capable of rejecting the violent, unholy enterprise of colonizing North America. When Calvinists, Lutherans, Mennonites, and Puritans came to the land of North America, the gospel they carried, the disciples they were making, and the political theology they were promoting allowed for the ongoing dehumanization of natives, stealing of land, theft of bodies, and the overall promotion of white supremacy and a defense of whiteness. This can't be emphasized enough. Said another way, one of the primary reasons we have a broken and diseased political theology is a result of not being able to separate the evils of colonialism with our view of God to begin with. And look, I have a lot of Reformed leanings theologically, but we have not, as majority culture leaders of churches that are neo-Reformed or Reformed adjacent, began to address our theological blind spots as they relate to colonialism. Please keep these points in mind as you explore where you might fit in. So, what's the solution? Well, 
duh, it's Jesus. Jesus is the solution. Jesus is view number four. Uh, this is one view, a fourth view that rejects the worst parts of these three positions and redeems the best parts of these three positions. This view was created by the man himself, Jesus Christ. I will call this view political witness, faithful subversion of politics. What does political witness mean? It means that God's people and the church are a political witness by virtue of being the church. We are, quote, political because King Jesus started an organization in his name. Faithful means that we promote the politics of Jesus, his teaching and gospel as a means of faithfulness in the world. Subversion means that, like Jesus, we upend the goals of national politics through the political agenda of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, self-control. And we do this all in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Subversion means that we work hard both inside and outside of the political structures to hold those in power to account as Jesus did so that the gospel of God can be understood clearly and accepted by those who long for salvation. This quote subversion is what the late civil rights juggernaut John Lewis called good trouble. This is a disruptive peace holy political discontent. This fourth view follows the theological tradition of Fannie Lou Hamer, James Cone, Dorothy Day, Richard Twist, Oscar Romero, Tojohiko Kagawa, Martin Luther King Jr., William Wilberforce, Mother Teresa, Paul Hebert, Desmond Tutu, Howard Thurman, Bonhoeffer, all of these faithful heroes bear witness to the unjust overreach of those in power to disenfranchise the poor, dehumanized through false constructs like race through colonization of the natives and doing it all in the name of the European conquering Calvinist Jesus. These heroes call the powerful to account just like Jesus did in order to be a faithful witness as the church in the world. This fourth position claims that when the church sells out to power over politics, the witness of Jesus in the world will always be lost. When the church sells out to the thinking that we can self-actualize the kingdom of God through worldly politics and systems, the church will lose her salt and light. This fourth view, political witness, says that because Jesus is king, the church can't be about lording Christian legislation over the political systems or killing enemies of the state on behalf of Jesus as Calvin would have it. It isn't about the Lutheran ambivalence where some, like me, have the privilege of disengaging or engaging 
nor is it about being quiet in the land and holding the Sermon on the Mount in your heart and not in the public square. So what does this look like? I'm going to give us seven principles of this fourth position, faithful subversion that Jesus instituted for his church. And I'm asking you as as a follower of Jesus to test your heart as we look at these political principles that we derive from Jesus. Political witness, faithful subversion means one, the church is the political alternative to worldly political systems. The church is the political alternative to worldly political systems. So the church is the religio-political institution started by Jesus to represent a politics of freedom in Christ, self-control, love of God, love of neighbor, joy, care for the widow and orphan, and allegiance to Jesus. When the church simply does what it is supposed to do biblically by making disciples of the king, we embody the politics of Jesus. No matter what we do, we proclaim the politics of Jesus by virtue of being the church of God on earth. Two, the politics of Jesus measures success by faithfulness, not by acquired power or greater influence. In the Sermon on the Mount, King Jesus says, Blessed are you when people don't treat you well, because that is how the systems of the world treated Jesus and the prophets of old. Worldly politics measures success with a perfect smile. The successful candidate, a brutal PR campaign, victorious fundraising, and winning the war to take the power to write the books of history. Jesus says to his disciples, tempted by political power, it will not be so among us. Matthew 20, 26. Worldly politics says if you can't turn the wheels of history in the right direction, you failed. Jesus measures our political faithfulness by whether we are doing the right thing in the right place and in the right way, not whether we, quote, win. Three, the politics of Jesus applies constant pressure on political systems and political leaders to take care of the most vulnerable. The Gospels have example after example of Jesus confronting the powerful and comforting those who are not experiencing human flourishing. We vote for this reason. We mobilize for this reason. We consider this reason when we think about how the church activates politically. Fourth, as the church treats all humans justly, listen, we are willing to suffer unjust treatment. One of the signs we are close to the kingdom of God and embodying the politics of Jesus is our willingness to suffer because we are fiercely defending the widow, orphan, prisoner, and the oppressed. 
Our families and churches should get annoyed with our constant advocacy, however imperfect, for those not in the room. Our country should be getting annoyed that the church is advocating for enemies of the state and enemies in our country. Why? Because Jesus was an enemy of the state and Jesus was homeless and Jesus was falsely imprisoned. And Matthew 25, 31 through 46 declares that we have been given a political mandate by our very good God. Five, we engage politically from the margins outward and from the bottom up. When it comes to mobilizing to start a movement to plant churches and get grassroots, who did Jesus work with? Ordinary people, struggling people. And, you know, he threw in a tax collector, (laughs) but that guy had to give up his job. We follow Jesus's philosophy of ministry, Jesus's philosophy of political activism. The person hurting in our midst, in our country, and in our family is the litmus test on how we are doing, and it is arms linked with those from the margins that we will mobilize from the bottom up and not just the top down. We go to those who are suffering in our midst and we listen and we believe their stories and we get behind their work for God. Six, violence is never the means of accomplishing our goals nor the end result of our politics. We boldly proclaim that our world is overrun by violence and the solution to this problem is not more coercion, not more violence, not more killing, not more violent rhetoric. Those in the kingdom don't trade in human life unless it is our human life. We put our lives, bodies, churches, and ministries on the line to shield humans from the evil of empire as Jesus did for us on the cross. We the peace, we better be super careful. We do not fall into the traps of violence. Seven, we do everything the Jesus way. The politics of Jesus means that we have our leader, our example, our manifesto, our discipler, and the one who gave us the blueprint for a renewed humanity. We test everything we do through the lens of the life, message, and ministry of Jesus, our King. This is the politics of Jesus. So what does this mean for the first three views? I talked a lot of game in my opening mini season about being nuanced. I painted with a broad brush and I admit that. So here is the nuance on what we do with these other views, which by no means are completely evil. The fourth position that I'm a proponent of political witness, faithful subversion to politics redeems and restricts the first three views. Here is how the politics of Jesus allows for Christians to seek 
power over politics without playing by the rules of worldly systems. We never let go of the Jesus way if we are going to engage in political influencing. We don't engage at the expense of the church's mission, making disciples, global unity with Christians, enemy love, love of neighbor, transnational solidarity, and telling the truth. What a novel idea are all some basic theopolitical commands of Jesus. We don't engage politically to lord a Christian agenda over the masses. The church mobilizes politically with a motivation of service, love, humility, and humanity. That is our Christian agenda. And when those political postures that Jesus gives us are jeopardized, we are careful to proceed. The politics of Jesus allow for Christians to work alongside powers, the second view, without becoming ambivalent in our comfort. We do not allow our privilege to drive us to complacency or political ambivalence. This is a real problem for many majority culture Christians. This is a place that I find myself in relation to national politics. For those of us whose human flourishing will not be impacted through who who comes to power, we have money and access. We can't simply disengage because King Jesus teaches us to engage on behalf of those who need our vote, need our activism, and need our service. We must, as Jesus did, engage out of love for those who suffer the most around us. The politics of Jesus allows Christians to reject worldly politics when it comes to political strategies and tactics rife with sin and unrighteousness. But even though we have cause to reject modern politics because of sinful corruption, the politics of Jesus remind us, reminds those who are prone to reject political engagement that Jesus did not stay in the wilderness after 40 days, but he returned and engaged society and culture in radical and countercultural ways. The politics of Jesus affirms that we must reject our hope in worldly political institutions while we infuse the politics of Jesus into our broken world. Friends, this fourth view called political Witness, faithful subversion of politics is not new and comes with a long history of heroes that I mentioned earlier that have begun to imagine a new world order where the politics of Jesus can and will change the world. This is the vision of Jesus. Now to conclude. So what does this mean about voting, running for office, donating towards a candidacy or a super PAC, which is dumb, or endorsing a candidate or passing out flyers, voting for a candidate simply because you don't like the other person? What about one particular policy issue like immigration? I would say this, one, political ideologies will always offer you simple cookie cutter answers and Jesus is not an ideologue. He is not our political puppet in the 21st century, and he refused to be a political puppet when the folks were trying to pin him down in the first century. 
Jesus confounded the politics of his day precisely because the politics of Jesus and the freedom we have in Christ to activate politically should and will look very different depending on who we are and where we are. The answers will not always be easy. I'm not going to answer those questions for you. Two, and this will help, have you begun to build your political theology through Jesus? Sit down and read Luke, for example, and try to answer one question. How does Jesus organize politically? Start with Jesus. Don't start with me. Don't start with someone else. Sit down with your Bible in Luke and let Jesus shape you. His grassroots tactics are dope. Learn them. Use them. Get you some of that. Finally, I gave seven concrete ways the politics of Jesus should manifest in our churches and lives. So now to reflection questions. Which of these seven principles can you implement in your local church? Which of these four views have had the biggest impact on your political theology? How has the power over politics position impacted your church? I guarantee it has. How can you begin building the politics of Jesus into the life of your church? The rest of this season is dedicated to helping us understand these things. I'm going to be interviewing quite a few people. If you have any questions out of this episode, send a direct message to our Instagram at Made for Packs. Message us on Facebook or email us at wethepeace at madeforpacks.org. We will dedicate an episode to answer some of your questions. And for further reading, if you're like, all right, I want to learn about these different views, I would encourage five views on church and politics published by Zonderfin. My name is Josh. This is We the Peace. <laughs>